Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am comedian Shane Moss and host and curator of the new hit show, Stand Up Science, coming to a city near you soon. The dates are really filling up. We're working on about a 30 to 40 city tour for the beginning of 2019. That's spanning January to May, and dates are filling in fast, really getting a nice spread all around the U.S. Make sure to go to shanemoss.com, join the email list, and you'll be the first to know when I do book something in your city. Just to give you a little sample, in the Boston date, Steven Pinker, one of the greatest thinkers of our generation, will be on Stand Up Science, and in the L.A. date, Pete Holmes, one of the best comedians of our generations, will be on the stand-up science show. I am getting some real heavy hitters. All these shows, the eight-show test run was a huge success. I cannot wait for you guys to see it. It's fantastic. Every show is different. Every show has two different academics in each city and a local comic. And we get to hear talks from the academic, stand-up from the comic. And then at the end, all of us... Join on stage for a panel discussion led by you, the audience. Your questions spawn our conversations. It's a fantastic time. There's nothing else like it. Please go to shanemoss.com to take a look around and see where we're starting to book it. A lot of the dates haven't been filled in on the website yet because I got to confirm the guests and everything else first, but they are coming in fast and heavy. Sure. I, I'm not sure that's how you're supposed to say that, but they're coming in real fast and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add them on as soon as I can. So really keep an eye out for that. And if you want to see me do stand up, I'm doing stand up. So stand up used to be everything that I do, but now if you want to see me do a full stand up show, uh, if you want to see me headlining, it's going to be in Milwaukee on New Year's. I'm going to be doing a big show and then. Also, in in the second half of January, I'll be in Cincinnati at Go Bananas doing uh, regular old stand-up. I have my new act kind of about uh, humans' search for meaning, and I'm mixing it in with another new act that I'm writing as well. So I'm, I've been cranking out tons of material lately. This stand-up science show has been a real inspiration for me. So I hope you get on board. It's going to really take off, and I really love anything you can do to spread the word for me. Would be terrific. You will not regret it. It's fantastic time. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am at the Washington State University of Vancouver talking with Assistant Professor of Human Development. Dr. Sarah Waters is joining me today. Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So uh, I, I reached out to you. You sent me some papers that we're definitely going to talk about that were very, very interesting. But I also I tried to go and find more of your work and 
for whatever reason on this, I couldn't find like your list of publications and stuff like that that I normally can. So I'm not quite as prepared in terms of like knowing your background. Okay. Um, so, uh, but that, that's so i'll get to learn along with the listener a little bit about the let's let's do a little uh kind of set up the journey of sarah waters and, <laughs> and how you came to be beginning <laughs> yeah the, the origin story the origin story okay <laughs> well i mean my sort of academic origin story probably starts in college undergrad i was uh Wanted to be a writer. I was an English literature major, um, but I also needed to work. And I ended up um, as like an assistant teacher at the preschool that was located on campus. So um, unlike most early child care center situations, this preschool was uh, run by people with PhDs in developmental psychology. So uh, I got to play with kids but and, and make some money, but I also got kind of a deep dive into people who really think and study early child development really carefully. Hmm. And kind of... Um, and that kind of turned my head. That sort of tra- changed my trajectory. So after a year or two working there with some really incredible mentor teachers, I um, ended up deciding to go to grad school to study child development more. I just I was seeing things happening in these two and three and four year olds that um, were really made me aware, and I'm much more aware now, but it was my first introduction to just how sophisticated these young children are, how much they're picking up about their world, how much they're sort of puzzling things out on the on the go, and how a lot of times as adults, we do not appreciate fully how much is going on um, in these really young lives. And so that piqued my curiosity. That took me to grad school. While getting my PhD, I was working in a lab studying emotional development, sort of how do parents socialize emotions and socialize emotional development? How do some kids learn how to regulate their emotions well and other kids don't? Things like that. And so I was spending a lot of time um, frustrating four-year-olds and making their parents deal with that, (laughs) torturing young children. (laughs) Um, This is why there's debriefs after studies. Yes, it's true. So I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because we used um, a task that uh, involved offering the child a piece of candy and then telling the parent that we wanted them to to not allow their child to have the candy, right? So so it could set up anything from a just, oh, put that away to a total meltdown between the parent and the four-year-old. It's also something that anybody who's been to the store with a small child knows happens all the time, right? Mm-hmm. They put those candies down low for a reason. Yeah. So kids can get their hands on them at the checkout. <laughs> well, it's also, it's at the checkout, so it's unavoidable, but mm-hmm. it's also at the end of your grocery right. store journey. You're, you're, you have that decision fatigue yep. you've already like you got the apples you were supposed to get for your health uh, right. that the doctor recommends an apple a day i'm not sure that's a thing that doctor is <laughs> these days. but but that's what you did you heard right. you heard that and so you got the apple and you felt good about it and then you went through the cereal aisle things started falling apart a little bit and then and then the samples there are so many samples to mm-hmm. choose from and and yeah oh maybe we'll can make this and then you get to the end 
and you got no energy left in that right. prefrontal cortex and the, right. the and the kid and the kid sees the candy and it's over mm-hmm. they, they got you the car is in sight you can almost get them <laughs> sort of out of the public eye um, but you still have to get through that checkout so so it, it was torturing little kids and their parents but in a very kind of real life way and my job was to watch the videotapes of these interactions and try to figure out what parents were doing the parents whose kids weren't melting down what were they doing how were they doing things differently and um as is much more often the case in science than we like to let on we couldn't find anything that sort of answered our question looking at the behavior of what parents and children were doing and trying to tell the difference between the the pairs parent-child pairs who handled things pretty smoothly and went on to go do something else versus just sort of escalated and escalated until the kid was completely losing it. So, by the way, yeah. I, I know it's always a chore for any academic to to get all of the funding they want mm. for a particular things. So, mm-hmm. did did you ever just go to like PTAs or whatever and go like, <laughs> "Hey, we're we're looking into making children less bratty." <laughs> that <laughs> that's maybe a market that jar, I haven't thought about. Yeah. Um, you know, there is more more kind of awareness in like education and and grant making organizations that support education that self-regulation like being able to not be bratty when you start kindergarten or start first grade is actually just as if not more important than like knowing your letters or your numbers right in terms of kids being able to be successful in school yeah i was just sad I remember just, I was very sad. <laughs> I just, I was like, I remember enjoying uh, life up until around four or five Aww. when school started. <laughs> and then they ripped me away from my mother yeah. and put me in this very scary situation. And I was one of the youngest in my class, mm-hmm. too. And oh, my goodness, I didn't. I didn't handle it well. I didn't have a good start, and uh, I'm I'm still a part of this podcast is trying to redo my finish. Uh, <laughs> there you cool. go. Uh, Research is me search. Exactly. Figure out how did I become this person that I am now, and what can I do about it. So, um, there, so there's a lot of ways in in, mm-hmm. in which uh, emotion, uh, emotional regulation uh, factors into child development, yeah. not not just in terms of is your kid a jerk or not? Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I was coming to it with a, an understanding uh, or a, a growing understanding of just how important that caregiver-child relationship is in the first couple of years and how that's actually where we're learning our, our regulation in terms of, of just even like bi- biological regulation, sort of when we get cry and get upset and then that we can feel better again. Well, really young infants don't have much much way to do anything in the world, right? Like they're totally reliant on their caregiver to be that external regulator, to see when the child's getting upset, to respond in a way that actually soothes the child. And through that experience of, oh, my world falls apart, and then my person comes and puts things back together for me. When you experience that over and over and over across those first months and years, you start to internalize that process yourself, right? And so that by the time you're four, five, six, hopefully you have developed some ability to put your world back together for yourself, 
And so it's not as hard to be away from your caregiver because you've kind of built an internal regulation system for yourself. And I mean that in terms of brain development, biological systems, you know, the whole the whole package. Have you studied how to do this for, say, like a 38-year-old straight white guy? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably like clinical psychology. That's okay. like a whole different thing. All right. I, I am mean, not I, a clinician. Just, just I, I'm just using a hypothetical <laughs> example. I, yeah. I don't even Nobody know how present, I came up just, with that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about so attachment theory. This, I, this, this. Uh, that's speaking to this bond. I mean, that's sort of the idea is that we we are learning this stuff in the first couple of years time before we even really have language. Like it's very experiential. Right. But then that's the blueprint for everything going forward. So those of us who got those experiences have a much better chance at sort of moving smoothly through the transition to school or navigating friendships when we're a little bit older, you know, romantic relationships when we're even a little bit older, all of those kinds of things. Those of us who didn't, for whatever reason, uh, have some more challenges during those uh, during those transitions. But one of the things that's really super important to me that people know is how it's never set in stone. Right. This is not a sort of deterministic or like, gee, if you didn't get the good stuff with your caregiver in those first couple of years, you're screwed. Right. That's never the story. There's always room for changing the trajectory, healing some of that stuff that didn't happen quite the right way in the beginning. Plus, who's to say having perfect emotional <laughs> regulation is, is is the the best and only way to live a life? Yeah, exactly. I've I've, I've had a much more exciting life than most, <laughs> predominantly due to my inability to regulate my go. emotional state. Who wants to be so. a train when you can be a roller coaster? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I've had some wild twists and turns. Um, so. So, uh, so when you're thinking about uh, so to take a kid at a at a certain age comes in and you're trying to determine whether this child is good at at uh, mm. d- determining or at regulating their emotions or mm-hmm. not. What, what are the kind of things that uh, that you're looking for at um, at kind of maybe extreme ends of not being good at it. And, right. And then, and so like what, what kind of criteria is it? I mean, what's, what's going into the evaluation of how is that determined? What is right. good emotion right. regulation? Right. So there's or useful, I guess we should say for useful for our modern environment. Right. Adaptive. Adaptive. Yeah. Right. Um, so, I mean, if we're thinking about something like, like in school, is this a child who's going to get referred to like the principal's office or whatever a bunch, you know, these kinds of things um, versus what we might do in the laboratory to be able to look at behaviors that you might not get to see all the time. Right. So so like with the candy, we kind of create emotionally evocative or like challenging situations so we can kind of see kids push out to the extremes. Right. Where if we let them just do their own thing, they might not. We might not get to see those extreme behaviors. Um, You know, when we think about emotion regulation and kind of what are the criteria for it being maladaptive, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is that 
we probably first just tend to think about behavior. Like, what do we see kids doing? Are they laying on the floor, kicking and screaming, throwing a temper tantrum, right? Or, or are they kind of following rules and things? And that's one part of it. But there's also what's going on inside the body, right, or under the skin. And that's where I started to get really curious when I was watching these videos that we had had done of four and four-year-olds and their parents. Um, was what's going on, what's the, the biological regulation or the physiological regulation? Because what we know is that sometimes there are kids who look really calm and together and are just sitting at their desks quietly following all the rules, but physiologically they can be super dysregulated. Mm. And it's that, that stress response in the body that over time leads to negative health consequences and stuff, right? So in fact, sometimes the kids who are acting out and can't sit still and are, you know, wiggling all over and bugging their neighbor, they're more likely to get the teacher's attention. So they're more likely to maybe like get referred to the school psychologist or something and like get some support for their dysregulation. Yeah. Um, and Plus they, they're expressing themselves. Right. Right. Versus the child, we would talk about them as externalizing behaviors, externalizing problem behaviors that are on the outside, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but then you've also got internalizing problem behaviors which are like the more like the depressive anxiety very like inward focus and a lot of times no comment (laughs) (laughs) and those maybe don't get caught by or they're just they're not as obvious right those kids can look like they're just very compliant they're following the rules they're kind of good kids but they might not be thriving right like their well-being and especially sort of what's going on inside of their bodies might not be what we would want so it's a tricky thing to kind of say here's the the diagnostic criteria or whatever here's the threshold because it's there are multiple systems going on there are multiple ways that we can be dysregulated there's also something to be said for um you know, there. I'm talking really about sort of adults' definition of what is good, right, in the classroom. Whereas a child, child who um, who can use emotion very skillfully to get their peers to do the things that they want them to, like that can an adult might see that as like manipulative, right, or even like being a bully, and and that's true. And it's very, it's very skillful. It's very adaptive to, you know, that kids can use their emotions or uh, how they affect other kids' emotions to get their needs met, to get what they want, mm-hmm. right? So that's the other pieces we try to think about, especially when you're thinking about kids who are acting out and having a lot of behavior problems because they come from homes where maybe there's violence in the home, conflict in the home, neglect in the home, that those behaviors are really useful, maybe even helping them to survive in a really scary home environment when they go to school and they're still sort of ready to fight and not focusing on one thing, but sort of their, you know, their attention is everywhere and they're super ready, super keyed up all the time, you know, then it starts to look like a negative behavior, right? Um, And it is in that context. Doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean that it wasn't a really actually very adaptive like sort of self-preservation behavior where it came from right Mm. in the home so that's another wrinkle sort of what do we call adaptive or good regulation it's so depends on the context and depend on who's defining adaptive right or who's defining kind of what we want the child to be doing yeah well i mean i i was uh 
I was speaking of me search. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I threw you that one. I, 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 well, I, I, I'm always, I always go back and forth with how, because people really like hearing like the, uh, the, uh, like a personal mm-hmm. attached thing. And then when you're, we're talking about scientific ideas, but then I'm like, sometimes I'm like, am I just talking about myself all of the time? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess we probably all are a little bit. Um, but, uh, maybe me more than most, but I'm, I'm from, uh, kind of, Pleasantville, USA. I'm, I'm from uh, kind of a medium, smallish town in Wisconsin, and and my parents from exceptionally small towns. And there's definitely a lot of internalizing going mm. on around there because there's you know there's a lot of social costs involved. Like you make a mistake, and then everyone knows about it. And <laughs> there's like a lot of gossip and everything. So it's you know it's a pretty good strategy if you just kind of keep a smile on your face and just keep on moving forward, and you don't ask too many questions and don't ruffle any feathers and mm-hmm. you don't share too many feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know that's sometimes a very adaptive uh strategy for people in a right. in a smaller area but but uh yeah that's it. so but uh, uh this is kind of the opposite of of uh, what you're t- so so i was definitely i was i was more of like a i shut it down type mm-hmm. i was i was a kid in the corner like not talking to anybody right but but then there's these these kids that are like everyone they're a nightmare for everyone and they're hitting people and everything else and that might be a real indicator that there's something troubling going mm-hmm. on at home right uh, it's definitely easier to see that behavior, right, as the right. adults around that child and say, hey, we need to do something mm-hmm. here, right, versus the child who's sitting in the corner quietly sort of not disturbing anybody, not, you know, just keeping their head down. Maybe they're OK. Like, I'm not saying every child who's kind of just doing their own thing in the corner is struggling internally, but some are and they it's really easy for them to go under the radar. Mm-hmm. Right. And what we what the science around you know these sort of social stress situations like sitting alone in the corner not having any friends through school or whatever uh i didn't say that no <laughs> friends we're, we're talking about you i, you, I just, had no idea you, you this is a hypothetical got, child yeah, right lucky guess <laughs> um but what the science around kind of how does stress get inside of our bodies, right? How do these social experiences or these like relationship experiences actually change our biology in ways that then are related to not just mental, but physical health outcomes decades later, right? Mm -hmm. As an adult. And, and there's, you know, there's the majority of the work around that in this, it's been going on for decades now looking at how early child trauma. So not just, sitting in the corner but like pretty extreme stuff happening in the home right right, right. how that yeah, i'm like I, I i i'm i'm reluctant please don't take this as like complaining <laughs> right. when i'm sharing right. because uh, i had very wonderful parents who did the best that they could absolutely and uh, with the information that they had and uh certainly had it very lucky compared to a, a, a lot of the people with with more serious issues right. that we're talking about right 
Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. So, you know, the the work linking trauma and like abuse in childhood to adult health outcomes and even early mortality um, has been around for a couple decades now. And people are really sort of starting to think more and more to pay attention to it. Um, but it's a continuum, right? There are ways in which internalizing your emotions and these kinds of things are also having an, an impact on your physiology and your biology. That idea of bottling it up, right? There's this very um, tension in the body associated with that expression even. And I think we're coming to see that there's there's power in that. The social isolation and loneliness changes cell regulation, changes immune mm-hmm. response and all kinds of downstream effects on our health. Yeah, you might even predict that, like, if you if you eventually put that kid on stage and give them the opportunity to say whatever they want, they might be like, well, here's a bunch of stuff I've been meaning to yell at all of you for a very long time, <laughs> which is much healthier than how some people find outlets for that behavior. That's true. But, but this is so uh, so that's fascinating. Uh, a cell, uh, this is making changes on a cellular level. Can you mm-hmm. elaborate on that a little bit? Um, well, so you're. So probably somewhat familiar with like the idea of epigenetics, mm-hmm. right? And that um, there are these caps on the ends of our DNA that are changing our sort of regulating which genes are on or off and then mm-hmm. what proteins are produced and all these downstream effects, right? And there's emerging work showing that things, especially things like social isolation and loneliness, um, so not having that social network or that social support, being the the one who's off by themselves, wishing that they were connected to the other kids on oh, the playground. Oh, come on. <laughs> but somehow <laughs> not able to make that link that we're starting to uh, unpack like the mechanisms, like what's going on there, right? Like that, that actually changes gene expression. So certain genes get turned on and turned off based on long-term experiences of that kind of social isolation. And then that has all of these effects on um, particularly the immune system. Um that the, the sort of wear and tear on the body that we think of as um, the effects of chronic stress, this is trying to unpack those mechanisms, mm-hmm. trying to understand how does that happen exactly, right? Mm-hmm. How do the social experiences get inside the body? And and part of it, I'm sure it's a much more complex story, but part of it is through these epigenetic processes of gene expression and, and which genes get turned on and turned off by 
by the brain's responses to these situations. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we uh, certainly uh, talk from time to time about um, emotions. I, I, I'm, I'm never, I'm never quite sure. I'm saying this in, in the best way possible, but but how how our emotional states have evolved to be these kind of drivers that are mm-hmm. often motivating these bodies of ours to uh, behave in certain ways that are sometimes toward goals hidden from our conscious awareness. But but these are all these different kind of emotions are kind of these behavioral tools mm-hmm. um, that activate a, a certain response. What is, I was thinking about this the other night, what is shyness about? Because there's certainly, there's, I mean, there's social costs involved of, of putting yourself out there and maybe mm-hmm. embarrassing yourself or mm-hmm. failure in front of others or mm-hmm. something like this. So is is that all that, that's going on is just like that's that's what that that emotion is kind of activating like hold up don't they may not want to be friends maybe yeah. you shouldn't talk to that girl or guy or whatever. Well, so when we study sort of where something, a personality kind of trait or something like shyness comes from developmentally. And we go back to infancy and trying to figure out how how do these kids start that end up being these really shy kids or these really shy adults. Um, and so we talk about temperament is kind of like baby personality sort of. And, and the extent to which a baby is really inhibited um, is one of the aspects of temperament. And that mm. an inhibition tends to link up to like social anxiety, especially social anxiety or being timid or shy, like those are sort of all related to each other. And so babies are born with different temperaments. I mean, anybody who's interacted from from the first days of life, you know, uh, knows that some babies are born really pretty easygoing, like they're easy to soothe, they get on a regular like eating and sleeping schedule really easily and some are less so you know some need they're much more easily aroused by changes in their environment you know they just have a much more sort of reactive system um they might be harder to get onto a regular schedule all these things that make it a little bit more challenging to parent or caregive these babies so there's been actually longitudinal studies like following inhibited babies or toddlers those who score like quite high in inhibition and so they'll do that they'll they'll figure that out by bringing kids into the lab and introducing them to different um, situations that could either be really scary or could be sort of odd but interesting depending on your reaction right so you're an 18 month old and you're in a strange environment with the researcher so they're a strange person but your parent or your caregiver is there too right and now there's like an electronic robot right at the other side of the room like approaching you or whatever is um, it fun or is it scary exactly and that's where temperament comes from is mm-hmm. you know or that's where temperament comes in not comes from um is is that like oh that's odd but my parent my parents right there and and i can kind of figure out what's going on and actually this is super cool or is it like oh <laughs> you know holy moly like get me out of here right and so we're born somewhere on this continuum of how likely we are to kind of have a fear response to new situations or new people or new robots. Um, and then how our parents respond to us when we have that fearful reaction can either kind of um, become a positive feedback loop, really kind of like like exacerbate that fear response 
or kind of settle it down a notch. And so then over those childhood years, you can get a kid who becomes more and more timid, more and more inhibited, more and more fearful in different situations to where they're going to just hang back and not even try to get into the social group because they're so anxious around that. Um Versus a kid who maybe started out more inhibited, but learned some good strategies and learned it's really not that scary. And by the time you're a little bit older, you're willing to take the chance to see if these people want to be your friend, even though it might be scarier for you at sort of baseline than the kid next to you. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You do enough shows. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> meet, meet enough friends in the comedy community talk to enough people after shows again i'm just like this is a hypothetical right. and then you you start learning some more of these social skills mm-hmm. over time um so so uh, and this isn't when we talk about um uh like inhibit this doesn't necessarily mean this is um across all areas of life we all have all of these uh different aspects of our lives going on and we enact different personalities mm-hmm. and different strategies in different situations. I have, as, as kind of, you're we talking about that. I was thinking of, uh, of, uh, rock climbers. Cause I'm, I'm into rock climbing. And if you go to a rock climbing gym, it's just like, uh, I, like I knew when the first time I went to a rock climbing gym, I was like, this, these are my people. <laughs> it's just like, no one talks to anybody, <laughs> but but not not inhibited in the way that, like these are kind of thrill seeking right. people, if anything. And right. I was a huge adrenaline junkie right. growing up, even though I was kind of timid socially and not into yeah, absolutely. Team so that and, matters too. Is it the social situations that are really um, challenging or scary versus uh, you know? the kids who are climbing all over the chairs and jumping off the table and whatever, but you bring a strange person or a strange kid into the room and suddenly they're going to be kind of clinging to their parent, right? Mm -hmm. So you're right. It really can be very diverse even in one individual what things are scary or, you know, evoke a fear response and which don't. And so, so there's this wide spectrum of personalities and human emotions and, and, um, and, um, kind of salience what what do you call it what 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 what's the word for um for like how strongly you're feeling an emotion what do you what do you use for that um mm, intensity or your reactivity yeah, like it, how reactive you yeah, are I to wasn't a situation sure if there's like a real sciencey word for it but yeah um <laughs> just checking in <laughs> um, maybe there is um yeah i, I I feel like I I saw some word reading one of your papers. I'm like, oh, that's a good way to put it. Uh, anyway, doesn't matter. But the uh, point I want to make is is there is, and this isn't to make the mistake of saying like because there's this wide range and spectrum of of strategies, it doesn't necessarily mean that every strategy is adaptive just because it exists mm-hmm. in in uh, in the toolbox. Right. Doesn't mean that evolution is striving for these perfect sets of tools necessarily um not necessarily it's not uh uh but um uh i i guess i guess the question i'm asking is when you talk about this easy baby mm. well every parent 
wants an easy baby. If you're if you're picking out if the if the stork is giving you a number of options and right. it, you're you're gonna go like, give me the easy baby. But just because this is what a parent uh, wants in a baby, does that necessarily mean that it's the most suited to have like this even keel baby and even keel lifestyle? I mean, it it might be the case that that humans are built to be a little adventurous sometimes and built Mm -hmm. to have adapt these different strategies or or different... um, uh, you, you know, if you have different siblings or whatever, you right. might have your uh, your older brothers to jock or something like that. So you need to find some other way of getting your attention sort of niche, for yourself. Social yeah. Niche. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in the like the older kind of temperament research talked about easy versus difficult versus slow to warm up babies. But you're right; it's not that there's a one universal like easy baby. In fact. What's the the sort of best case scenario for healthy development is the fit, the goodness of fit between the caregiver and the baby. So if you're a really um, like high energy, you know, go, go, go kind of parent and you have this super chill, just kind of sleeps all day baby, that might actually be like kind of frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. You want to have lots of face to face interaction and and your baby's not really up for that. They're more just wanting to to be very um you're, so, you're doing your whole act you've been working on your exactly. faces and your whole routine and you're just getting like this new toy and this new toy and they're Nothing. just interested in you know their fingers or whatever um and so that that's actually you're right where the the sort of magic is in the goodness of fit between the parent and the and the baby and that can go you know a super chill parent and a more sort of high arousal needs lots of um support kind of baby or vice versa and it's on the caregiver or the parent to to kind of meet the baby where they are right like we have to do the kind of shifting of our at least what we lead with in terms of our personality and our caregiving to meet the baby where they are um that was one thought the other one that i had was was that what you were saying about like maybe a more challenge challenging kid is actually evolutionarily adaptive. So there's work that They're like thinking outside the box or right. questioning things or whatever. I yeah, mean- absolutely. Being more of a thrill seeker and explorer, kind of pushing the boundaries. But also there's um, there's emerging work with humans looking at something that we call like fetal programming or prenatal programming the idea that the fetus is picking up on signals about the external environment you know during during development in utero development through things like the mother's um, stress response so like cortisol you know is not just a stress hormone it does lots of things but that's kind of what it's known for generally um so a mother whose body is circulating a lot of cortisol during pregnancy is sending a message to their fetus that says the world that I'm living in, that you're soon to be living in, is very stressful, right, or is very dangerous. And that actually changes the way that the fetus develops. So we're starting to understand, we understand it better in animals than in humans, for obvious limitations on the experiments we can do with humans. But we're starting to really understand that a mother who experiences chronic intense stress during pregnancy Mm -hmm. 
exposes the fetus to those stress response systems biologically, changes fetal development through epigenetic processes, through things like methylation, that then we can see in the baby's DNA, but then we can also see those kids are more likely, it's not a perfect you know, prediction, but they're at greater risk for things like anxiety and these behavior problems mm. through childhood into grade school and beyond. Yeah. Learning about stress is always just the most stressful thing <laughs> you can do. Like, I was such a chill guy before I started learning about stress. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but, what if this stress stuff happens to yeah. me? And it did. Yeah. Yeah, it's Shoot, somewhat unavoidable. In there. Yep. Um so so you're I I mean I I'm kind of uh, uh wondering how this is this is this just kind of setting up so so you're sitting there in the womb and in your and your mom for whatever reason she's she's uh there there might be lions and tigers and mm-hmm. bears out there in the environment right but there may not be and and uh your mother might just be perceiving um right say like a, a dirty uh, bedroom as as a, a as a very stressful situation and right. st- releasing these same uh cortisol and stress hormones and and you're getting this as as a baby and 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 so this is this is just kind of regulating the initial kind of preparing for this is how much of this stuff this cortisol stuff we're going to need mm-hmm. once we get out there because how is it what's making i mean obviously we don't know what's going on um in uh the prenatal environment in terms of like a kind of conscious awareness sort of right like, yeah and i'm not suggesting that it's actually a conscious like oh it's right, going to be right. scary no, out no, there no, i no. better get ready for that no no nor am i but there but there still must be something like uh, like when a when a baby is born mm-hmm. and opens its eyes mm-hmm. It can see. I mean, it might be a blob of color, and it, mm-hmm. it might take a while before it can differentiate details. And, right, and that's a lot of the those early processes. But right. there's still something happening mm-hmm. within before the child. There, there must be some sort of like whether there's like some like fractal like colorful world that mm-hmm. they're living in. And mm-hmm. the we have no idea. Right, but but I'm I'm, I'm wondering how that it interacts with whatever that fetal experience like like what it feels like it, mm. it must it must have like a feeling to it that it that it's then that then then you associate that feeling later on in development with like your your kind of taught like uh you know don't don't cross. Uh, uh, look both ways before crossing the street, right. because, and then you're told this kind of scary story about how you could be run over and break. And right. then it taps into this feeling, and then and it, yeah, I mean, I think one of the wh- I I don't mean to like oh because these are like <laughs> too big of ideas right. for for right. like. But what? there is some. I mean, there there we we do have studies showing that that the fetus hears things. Right. And prefers. I mean, there's a study where like the pregnant woman read Dr. Seuss stories to the to her belly, you know, and then the when the newborns were 
able to choose what to listen to. They preferred to hear those same kinds of stories mm-hmm. that, be, you know, suggesting that like there was a familiarity that happened like prenatally, right? right. They, they were rem- remembering on some kind of basic sensory, right. level. On the sensory level. Yeah. And I think the same thing, the anxiety or the fear, it's happening in a, in a sensitization of the stress response system, right? It's not a conscious fear thing, or at least right. we don't have any way to tap into that but the you know the stress response systems in the body are actually getting formed during that time right so how kind of finely tuned right this like a like a you know a very sensitive to any kind of stressful situation if you're if you're getting that exposure from your mom while you're developing in utero, one of the things that's happening is your stress response system is becoming very finely tuned. Okay, the the message is that there are dangers out there, so I need to be super tuned into danger, right? So Get then you ready. see it like real. So then that like, oh, when the parent grabs you and pulls you away from the curb or whatever, you don't have a like, oh, okay, whatever. You have a, <gasps> you know, kind of response, right? right? And that did, the beginnings of that got set during this fetal time right. which is how like specific do you need to be how sensitive do you need to be to these signals in the outside world i was watching uh some planet earth and there was a uh i think a planet earth 2 i think it was and there was a scene there's these lizards that their their eggs are kind of under these rocks and they hatch and they kind of peek their head out a little bit and then they they have to get from point a to point b to get to like where they'll settle or whatever Mm -hmm. and um in between a and b is a pit of snakes and 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 so So we have to run across this crazy this lizard hatches (laughs) and within like 30 seconds of this new existence but but, i mean we we think of being born as the start of existence right um but that's not the case right uh and so that uh that has to that lizard has to have x amount of stress hormones ready to go for that moment right i don't know what happens once it gets through the pit of snakes it might be just living in paradise mm-hmm. after that and maybe maybe it just uses up all that cortisol or right. whatever which i imagine it's a similar stress response system mm-hmm. uh, right then and maybe uses up all it ever needs in life and then it's pretty it's living on easy street after that but it needs to right. have that exactly set up and so that us. evolved you can see how that evolved right mm-hmm. that the that the lizards that were born without that immediate stress response just got eaten by snakes right away, right? right? And so over time, that became just a part of what these lizards did. They were born and immediately started running. I've seen that same exact scene. And so it in humans, I mean, we talk, we tend to talk about it in really negative terms, but it has an evolutionary function. It's just that now when those stress response or when those stress hormones are getting released prenatally, it's less likely that we need to be born super ready to deal with saber toothed tigers and more likely that we're gonna be born into poverty and food insecurity. Right, right. Right. Or we might be born into a perfectly fine environment where where uh your your mother was perhaps when she was a fetus in a very difficult environment and had upregulated these stress responses and then and and for 
for X number of threats in the actual environment that she was born into ended up being like one-tenth of X. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still regulated for yeah. X number of threats and is perceiving those threats, whether they're reality or not, and uh, whatever that means, I guess. And then, uh, and, and so, uh, so, so this might be, uh, this might be this very finely tuned um, uh, uh, regulation response, all for an environment that doesn't match what you were kind of born for. Uh, the environment that you're born into is not necessarily the environment that that you were kind of being biologically prepped for mm-hmm. uh, in in utero. Exactly, absolutely, and that you know you also mentioned like the intergenerational transmission, right? Mm-hmm. That because this happens really, really early in life, and maybe if you have a mom who's perceiving th- these things as highly stressful and highly threatening, that maybe another person wouldn't perceive that way because she has this very finely tuned stress response system. Sometimes that also means that she's not able to do the really lovely, contingent, sensitive caregiving, right? Mm-hmm. So so then you're born with this very finely tuned stress response system and you get raised by in those first years somebody who's not a great external regulator for your own extra turned up stress response, right? And that's how these things kind of just keep piling on over mm. generations. So listen, pregnant ladies, I know you have a lot on your plate, <laughs> <laughs> but if you could just not have any stress. <laughs> no, while you're no, no, pregnant. no. Stress oh, is, is not... not am, am I misinterpreting? <laughs> stress is not a bad word. Not You never okay. want to have no stress. That's right. actually really, really super important. I mean, we're talking about traumatic stress. So like some right. of the work that I have done are, you know, intervening with women who are pregnant who are in intimate partner violent relationships, mm. right? Actively during pregnancy. They're you know, under physical and, and emotional threat all of the time. Right. We're not talking about like the challenges, sort of the normative stressful challenges of navigating pregnancy and body changes and work changes and relationship changes. Oh, right, right, right. We're talking about um, either either trauma, you know, right. or chronic stress. Um, I've also worked with women who are homeless or in transitional housing situations. So that's not a physical abuse, but it's incredibly stressful, right? right. To like not know where you're going to sleep night after night. And those you're exactly during pregnancy, like those kinds of things, right. those kinds of chronic stressors, not uh, I had I have a student who is the nanny be for a two year old because the mom is pregnant and she wants to reduce her stress during pregnancy so she wants needs extra support to raise her two-year-old yeah like that's pr- i don't know the two-year-old maybe they're very stressful yeah. but that's probably within sort of the normative range of what our stress response system is supposed to do right. so we're not talking about normative stress response that's actually a great thing it's great to have a cortisol release when you're having to do public speaking and mm-hmm. you know your heart beats faster and you have all of those kinds of challenge responses going on inside your body that's not what we're talking about we're also not talking about acute stressors you have a conflict with your partner or you get in a fight at work or whatever and you're really upset and stressed out for a day or two and then you sort it out you know that's not going to change your fetus in these ways that we're talking about that's not what an important and responsible 
clarification. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're having such a lovely conversation here that I'm worried that I'm not even going to get to the papers that is, ah. so we, we got to jump into them because this is I don't I don't want our listeners to miss out. So you sent me some work you've done with mm-hmm. uh, what would you call it stress contagion? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so this is uh, I mean this isn't this isn't your work, but it here's an example that it made me think of from me search that uh-huh. I've done. Uh-huh. Um, I was thinking about this as I was reading the publication. I was like, I'm never letting my girlfriend pick me up from the airport ever again because I used to, and this isn't so much in my current relationship, but my past relationship is in Los Angeles and my girlfriend would come to pick me or I'd go to pick her up from the airport. Mm -hmm. And this is LAX and picking someone up at LAX is an absolute nightmare it's one of the more stressful situations a person can go through in our modern (laughs) society (laughs) if you're you know whatever uh an acute stressor right um and uh and you the the other person has has just landed Mm -hmm. waited for their bags Mm -hmm. maybe is missing a bag Mm -hmm. getting out trying to look for your car in this sea of and you got two people under a tremendous amount of stress. Uh, meanwhile, they're excited to see one another. <laughs> Been talking about it on the phone, real excited. Both parties get finally get picked <laughs> up. Yeah. Both under this tremendous amount of acute stress mm-hmm. and on the drive home find themselves fighting about the future of their relationship and some <laughs> some past thing of forgetting to do dishes or what have you right and uh and this is um just just like yawning or enthusiasm or uh laughter or uh, uh, mu- much of our many of our different uh emotional states are are kind of contagious i mm-hmm. guess yawning's not an emotion um <laughs> it makes me feel good <laughs> uh, but, but um uh but the, but this is kind of you, you do some of this work with uh with, with mother offspring mm-hmm. um transfer yeah transmission transmission okay yeah can you I, talk a little bit about that sure so I mean, I think we all can relate to that kind of example of like two people have had some kind of each had their own stressful experience and then they get together and nobody's in a good mood and everybody's sort of misinterpreting each other. One of the things that I was really wondering about and thinking about how do these social stressors or these relationship stresses affect um, affect our physiology or our biology was when a parent... Unfortunately, we don't come into every interaction with our young children kind of perfectly well-regulated, right, and ready to do whatever it is we need to be that external regulator for them, right? We mm-hmm. have our own stuff that we're bringing in. So so when I was first – actually, this came from going all the way back to watching these four-year-olds and their parents and trying to figure out, like, what was going on that I couldn't see. And one of the, one of the things I started to suspect was that there were physiological changes maybe that were happening and that were actually, like, being transmitted or that were like a, an additional pathway of communication between the parent and the child that obviously we were not catching with our video cameras. So um, – 
So I moved to a lab where I could actually do things like measure autonomic nervous system responses. So measure that sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight response in both parent and child using, you know, like electrocardiography and things just on the surface of the skin. Just as a reminder, uh, the the stress response when activated is the sympathetic and, the, and then when it's kind of dialed back down re- regulated, that's the parasympathetic. And uh, as far as I know, no one has a good reasoning of why they picked a uh, confusing name. Terminology because it, like because that? Because it's not really... Right. Uh, it's unrelated to sympathy. Right. Uh, Absolutely. So it's not right. sympathetic in the emotion word, right. world kind of term. Um, but that sympathetic fight or flight and then parasympathetic rest and digest is sometimes like the Mm -hmm. cutesy shorthand that we use. It's obviously much more complicated than that, but to kind of think about those two um, uh, systems that work on like your heart, heart function. So, so we can measure those things. We can do, we can just put a couple of sensors on the skin, even, um, you know, 12 month old babies or younger. And so then we can see what's going on in the body when they're interacting. And so the the studies that I've done will take the parent and we will uh, subject them to an acute stress situation in the laboratory while their child is happy playing somewhere else. So unlike the LAX example, we know that these babies or young children are not stressed out. They're off in a playroom. They're very happy. The, the stress is all happening on the parent side and we're measuring. What what What's the, so you have like a sitter that has, do you have the, do they have like a routine dialed in where like. Our baby this whispers. Makes, this makes every baby happy. They have, <laughs> uh, why, that, that's what you should be publishing <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the w- w- without fail just well, makes every um so you know the little like i guess they're like rice puffs these little puff like snacks that you can give babies they're like crack for babies i've never met a baby who doesn't kind of soothe that in this age range that doesn't sort of soothe and be happy when you're stuffing them full of these little like fruity sugary um i think they're like rice candies rice puffs um but again no there's not just like one secret thing that you do it's all about having people um who can very quickly read a baby's signals and adapt to them and figure out what they are going to need to feel better, right? Because the whole point of these experiments was to look at the stress transmission from from mother to baby. So if the baby is crying and having a really difficult time separating from mom, we can't do the experiment. So we needed, um, I had was really fortunate to have some, um, my baby whisperers, like a team of research assistants who were just really good at reading baby signals and figuring out how to soothe them and help them transition. And then we had a room full of, you know, age appropriate toys and snacks and, and fun things like that as well. But, um, and if we had, and, and there are some babies who are just not going to be okay with being separated from their mom and mm-hmm. going off and then they don't end up getting to be in the research, right? Cause they're just not going to be okay with what we need them to do. I, I, is the, uh, is- I believe it's the, I, I don't want to get too jargony um, mm. for people, but it, you call them the two rice puffers. Right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. You, you did read our papers. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we stress out the parent, you know, we, we create an acute stress response in the parent and then we're, and we're measuring that 
both in terms of, you know, just how they look and how they're reporting, but also what's going on in their bodies. Then we bring their child back to them. And then we're able to, because we also have those electrodes on the child, we're able to look at things like their heart rate and how the child actually synchronizes, their heart rate actually synchronizes to the parent's heart rate and becomes correlated or that like, you know, they're really strongly linked um, and become more and more strongly linked over time, the longer that they interact with each other. So we found that that was true when the mom had gotten what we called a negative stressor or a stressful. So what do we use to stress everybody out? Public speaking. Um, it's actually called the Trier Social Stress Test, and it's been used in social psychology for a long time. And it's a very like robust stress task. Um, so, but we can do it with um, evaluators. Those the participants or the mom in this case is giving a public, you know, a speech, doing a public speaking task, and there's people watching her, evaluating her, and if they're giving mother whisper, <laughs> um, and if they're giving her kind of subtle negative feedback mm-hmm. that sends the message of like you're not doing a good job you know on this difficult task if they're giving subtle positive feedback you get the like okay this is going well and so that's how we were able to differentiate between um sort of positive valence stress and negative valence stress and it was the negative valence stress that the babies caught it was Mm -hmm. the babies whose mothers had had that negative feedback during stress where they their heart rate elevated to meet mom and then they became synchronized and kind of moved in lockstep over time. So you got this actor, this confederate, do people mm-hmm. call them confederates? Mm-hmm. There's that's your a, jargon. That's a, that's yeah. a regular, t- okay, I yeah. didn't know if that was still a thing. Um, uh, why? Why can, uh, uh, again, that's a confusing yeah. word. There's, yes. Nothing there to do with the Confederate Army, Confederacy. <laughs> like, why? Just a researcher who's in on it, who's it, pretending to yeah. be a participant or a stranger, but is actually in on the experiment. Right, right. Uh, and so, and so, you have these. Act, which, by the way, I want to do a study which uh, shows what methods actors are prone to using to uh, stress out. A mother who's just who's giving a speech. I mean, like, I bet from the look of this guy, he's gonna throw in a lot of eye rolls <laughs> to get her. Uh, so, so this is what's happening. Yeah. Basically, they're, yeah, they're yawning. They're kind of they're, they're uh, or in 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 uh, uh, for the good one, you're you're just like you're you're smiling, you're leaning in, mm-hmm. you're acting real excited, standing ovation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that might I, be an overkill yeah, for probably, a Confederate. Probably, uh, and and this is how you're uh, setting this up. Yeah, exactly. And what what's the control? Someone just like mildly. <laughs> uh, so the control doesn't have an evaluator at all. So okay. it's a little odd. We'll ask the parent to just answer a question like on a cue card that's the same question that the they're getting in the speech from the evaluators but it's just in an empty room so they're doing because the idea is that there's changes in physiology from just talking for five or ten minutes right and so we want our control to be having the same kind of like metabolic demands of talking for five or ten minutes but without that stressful piece and it's the social it's not talking that's stressful it's the social evaluation it's doing it in front of other people who are judging you as you do it that creates that stress response so that's what our control Control is is just answering the same questions, but just out loud to yourself in a room alone. Do you ever have when when uh, the Confederates are giving like the negative feedback? Mm-hmm. Do you ever have mothers that like rip into them and like make fun of their shirt or like <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> not 
in so the... So they handle themselves better than I do on stage. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's embarrassing. Not uh, during. I guess I've had... So at the end, you mentioned debrief before. At the very end of the of the whole study, the we explain, of course, the sort of deception that mm. we weren't really evaluating them and that the Confederates were... Um, in on it and we're working really hard to give negative feedback even though the participant was delightful Mm -hmm. and we have i have had one or two times when the mom actually apologized to the confederate she was like i was thinking so many terrible things about you and i was just like what is her problem da 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 and now i find out you're like you're really lovely and i'm so sorry you're such a great actor (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah so so you get you get moms revved up Mm -hmm. or feeling good about themselves Mm -hmm. uh, and then you you give them their baby back yeah and then we see that mom's stress and transmits like to the baby different situations too right there there's, there's like a holding and a so after we kind of saw that this did indeed happen physiologically we wanted to know could we change it right could we break it could we make what what might we be able to do between mom and baby like a very simple thing that might kind of break that transmission and that's where the touch thing came in so we did another study similar whole new set of moms and babies and when mom when baby came into the room mom had been stressed out baby came in but sat in a high chair and they interacted without touching baby's heart rates did not change to match up with mom's um and so you know the moral of that story i think is not don't touch your baby um but to or don't pick up your baby or hold your baby but to be mindful that it's it's a two-way street right if your baby has you know say you're rushing to pick your kid up from childcare, right? And you've been fighting traffic and you're really hyped up and you walk in and your baby's happy and playing low key on the floor. If you rush over and pick them up, you're going to be transmitting that information that like, oh, something scary and stressful is happening, right? Maybe take a breath, get down there, do lots of smiling and all the, you know, we can be much more positive on our faces than we can like control our heart rate, you know, instantly. So relate that way and kind of be mindful that, yeah, you're always responding to your baby's emotions and stress, but your baby's also always responding to your emotions and stress too. And so you're sending messages even before they can talk, right? Even through things like touch or through Mm -hmm. things like that you're not even necessarily thinking about, like your body's response to a situation, your baby's picking up on that and it's, it's, you know, making changes to accommodate that. Hmm. Well, score one for high chairs, huh? Man, big high chairs going to be <laughs> love that they got all these plugs. Yeah. Uh, this, this, you come home from a bad day at work, you do high chair first, dial it down, then you hold your baby. Well, uh, uh, what, what is so? What's the what's the mechanism at work? How how is there this transference? Yeah. I mean, so so touch is part of it. And is it the tension in the holding? It, I think it's probably something like that. It's probably tension. There's also could be olfactory cues, right? Yeah, like if wondering. you're stressed out, you might be sweating more. And we know that babies are sensitive to the way, you know, to the way mm-hmm. mom's body smells. Um, there could be other pathways as well um, in terms of like vocal tone or kind of tension in voice and things. So I'm not saying touch is the only way or that we know exactly how it's happening, but the idea that we can do pretty simple behaviors to not transmit that stress, if we're mindful about that, if we're you know thinking about it, is sort of the point. Um, and then there's lots of other experiments we could do to try to isolate what other things could be going on. And this is actually just with 12-month-olds, too. So as we get to different ages, 
are there other pathways, right? Yeah, maybe you're just nicer to a baby that's in a high chair because they look so darn cute. (laughs) Than the one in your arms? They look pretty cute in your arms, too. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to get the plugs out there for for the high chair sponsor that I'm I'm hoping to wrangle in. Get a taste of that high chair money. There you go. Uh, (laughs) So... So then you talk about later on in life. I know we have to uh, wrap up here pretty quickly, but what what is this saying later on? In li- I would almost imagine there would be less transference later on in life. I mean, it's when you kind of talk about emotion regulation, it, talking about rice puffs be- <laughs> being baby crack. I mean, that really is like to learn what is like the appropriate levels mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of of kind of intensity for these different i mean if you if you see a baby eat its first piece of cake or something mm-hmm. like that one of these youtube videos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i mean the the level of pleasure that there right. i mean there there's like uh, you could take the same video of an adult doing their first line of cocaine or something like that, and it would totally similar brain systems. I bet. I bet the adult would nowhere near match the le- level of <laughs> happiness that a baby feels having its first taste of of cake. But I, I think there. I mean, there must be right the, these pretty extreme mm-hmm. er, early on, like crying fits. You mm-hmm. know, going the other way mm-hmm. uh, too. So, so do you think maybe even the transference might be uh, less impactful yeah i mean i think it it's probably early in life there's probably almost a survival kind of evolutionary adaptation to being super tuned into your caregiver right and that becomes less so as you get older and you can run away from the scary thing yourself or whatever right but we're such social creatures that a I still think, and there's work that looks just like at romantic pairs and stuff, gazing into each other's eyes, holding hands, that their heart rates will synchronize. Like there is a lot of um, evidence, I don't know, surgical teams, their physiology becoming synchronized as they do a surgery together to suggest that this ability to link up, not just in terms of eye contact and smiling at each other, but even in terms of what's going on with our heart rate or in our bodies help support the social coordination or cohesion. And that's going to be true at older ages. It might not be as immediate. It might, and it certainly probably doesn't happen through touch necessarily, but it serves other important social functions. Like how we're crushing this podcast right now, <laughs> there you even go. though we, we n- had never met before, mm-hmm. but we need to turn that on. We need to be firing on all cylinders and figuring out each other's compatibilities that sort of thing um so so this is uh uh yeah so this is i i saw the the words mirror neurons in the publication i got so excited Mm -hmm. mirror neurons where are we with mirror neurons are we still real excited about them or did they did did science oversell mirror neurons this is kind of the debate going on right now right can you right. talk a, a little bit about uh it, it just, it just it, what um, so I, what what how much you're factoring mirror neurons in into this this kind of work of of say transference yeah yeah i mean i think when we first really recognized that we had these neurological systems that were exactly for experiencing just what we're observing, right? Kind of um, an internal mimicry. Right. Um, 
that was really exciting and really powerful. And I think it's the, I don't know that it's as sort of like hot necessarily, but I think it's the underpinning for a lot of other work that's been going on, looking at just how much um, the, the the brain and, and social kinds of things are deeply connected to the body, right? So things like looking at how... Um, social pain, social rejection pain activates similar parts of the brain as physical pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? we, we we just did a, a, a couple episodes about disgust yeah. recently and, and how this kind of can project into moral judgments mm-hmm. and, and even how uh, how we how we go about um, uh, creating the laws that we create for our society based on what we think about a particular sexual behavior, or whatever, right. how that makes us feel physically right. associated with to the, the same sorts of systems that are uh, used for your your f- food preferences and knowing whether that Something's meat has or, spoiled or yeah. something. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, what do you? What's going on with? Uh, um, oh man, I'm just gonna. Do, do you have a heart out? That do you need to like? Do we need to wrap? Oh, up time right wise, now? no. Okay. Cool, because um, I have I have I I love when I can just ask people questions that aren't necessarily related <laughs> to their work. You seem cool with it, so I don't mean to put you in that position, but it's what I do. I was this biofeedback. A lot of people mm. are like, you got to listen to your heart. You know, mm. this is you, you hear this kind of from. Uh, you know, a lot of new agey right. uh, people talking about right. listening to the information from their heart and everything. But this is uh, uh, that is there is biofeedback stuff going on with whether you know stress response is happening mm-hmm. and your heart's pitter pattering mm-hmm. a, a little bit more. There is some sort of feed. It, it could also be that we're conditioned to like uh, when uh, you know some singers talking about like getting weak in the knees or whatever right. like well i've never experienced getting weak in the knees right. myself like is it maybe if maybe if we weren't talking about listening to your heart maybe if you were like uh if 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 we were instead raised in a society where you're like you gotta really listen to your fingertips like <laughs> every, yeah. everyone would be like "Ooh, i'm kind of like you know i'm tingling right now when right. i oh i got it like i got a bad tingle about this person and the fingertips you know right uh, and so so there might it might not be necessarily associated with um anything uh, any like like a specific organ physiological reality right um it, it could be kind of socially conditioned but it might also have to do with uh, with how say our heart is is regulating blood mm-hmm. flow and, mm-hmm. and uh obviously carrying all sorts of hormones around right through our body but this is kind of the sort of thing that you're talking about with biofeedback right um In a way. yeah yeah i mean i think that I know that's an unrelated example to what you're saying. <laughs> well, but. but the the idea that are these things that we tend to think of as really mind things, even like emotions, actually live in our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And that are, I mean, I you know, Descartes did us a huge disservice with the the mind body split, right? right. The, think therefore i am because made an error <laughs> uh across so many different 
you know, I'm thinking of like the the gut microbiome work that's coming out, right? Showing that there's this like crosstalk yeah, between about that. sounds real interesting. The, yeah, between neurotransmitters and you know mental states and what's going on in like, our gut microbiome. I've been like trying to write a better act and like create a better life for myself and like maybe if I get on this TV show and this TV show, I could have just ate an avocado. <laughs> Gosh darn it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, but that's the sort of thing that, that well, right, just that you know, exactly that, may, or maybe if you'd eaten more avocados, you'd be more successful at these other things, right? right. Because it really is this, yeah. yeah. Quick plug for big avocado, huh? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> avocados uh, and high chairs. Yeah. But so it, there's just so many examples I think right. that keep emerging of the, the brain and the body are not separate. You know, mm-hmm. we still kind of think of that as like, oh, the brain and the body, but it's. It's one system or many complex systems woven together, but it's not separate. And so, yeah, if you're feeling emotionally stressed, like your body's having that response too, right? And both your your mind, you know, your verbally or your face or whatever, but also your body is communicating with other people and their bodies are communicating back. And when we we have gotten so far to the side of ignoring our body, and sort of suppressing those kinds of signals and really trying to make everything be about the conscious and the verbal and what's why am I feeling this way from a very like rational perspective rather than, gee, if I have like a pit in my stomach, if I have a, that gut reaction, it could very well be that I'm picking up all kinds of sort of nonverbal sort of subtle things that I'm not even processing through these verbal conscious pathways, but that are informing the disgust response or whatever in ways that um, we should, you know, that are informative. Mm. We evolved all of this stuff to help us be more effective in our environment, pick up all these cues and respond well, right? right? So to just kind of ignore anything that's going on beneath the neck in terms of being a useful source of information is not serving us particularly well, I think. Oh, man, just the way you phrased that made my toes tingle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being absolutely ridiculous. Uh, all right, Sarah. So I have I have my my guests uh-huh. uh, each week name a charity of yeah. their choice. A fun little nice thing we like to do. Did you have one in mind? Yeah, this is going to seem totally out of left field, but... Um, Love left field. It's my uh, favorite part of the field. There, okay, there you go. Um, White Bison is an American Indian... Um, nonprofit that um, does a lot of different um, programs. It's based out of Colorado Springs. So it's a bunch of different programs to heal intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. and stress in, in um, Native communities. Uh, and it's a work, that kind of work is a direction that I'm taking, the biological stress and parents and children direction that I'm going now is partnering with the Colville tribes, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation here in Washington State to start healing, uh, take our understanding of how like acute and chronic stress affects the brain and the body and start thinking about it intergenerationally in these mm-hmm. populations um, and historical trauma and how th- so much of the violence and addiction and mental illness and things that these communities are, are experiencing right. really just at epidemic levels 
understanding that through a trauma lens and healing through a trauma lens. So anyways, this is a great Oh, that's so fascinating. (laughs) Not related to very closely to what we've been talking about. Well, that's what our episode should have been about. (laughs) We really dropped the ball. (laughs) Sorry about that. Slipped it in at the last minute. No, that's fantastic. That's, I mean, that what what fascinating uh, that is. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 that is such a, what's the name again? White bison. White bison. Huh, that is, well, uh, maybe we'll have you on again that's sometime. Like, to, sure. Uh, uh, that, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And, and also, uh, listeners, don't listen don't throw out those high chairs. You can always donate them. This is my own little <laughs> charity that I like to do each each week. Is you can always donate. The, don't let those high chairs go to waste. There's always families in need of more high chairs, and um, and also my just my own. Uh, now that we this is a little selfish, admittedly, uh, especially and maybe maybe a little tacky after plugging charities, but I do, I am starting an adult high chair business. High chairs for adults. Do you hate mm. having your feet on the ground while, <laughs> while you're eating? Remember when you were a kid and you're in a high chair and you could you could swing your, I, I was probably in a high chair way too late in life as a, according to this story, but uh, you could swing your, uh, and it's got the TV chair right there. You got the best view in the mm-hmm. house. If you're, if you have everyone over but everyone else is in a regular chair but you're in a high ch- that is that's really you're the life status. of the party that really is a status yep. so i just i always like to throw out one million dollar idea uh before uh before the end of each episode if possible and that's this week's but um uh, that that was such a wonderful conversation, Sarah. And so this is such a great timing because it's so in line with um, many of the things that we've been discussing on on the podcast lately and really filling in uh, some gaps for us as well. So I very much appreciate this you coming on, finding some time, being such a wonderful guest. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, author of Secular Faith, How Culture Has Trumped Religion in American Politics, Mark Allen Smith joins me. We have a terrific discussion about faith, our beliefs, how we make them, what their utility is, how they change with culture. Wonderful conversation. All the kind of stuff that I love thinking about all the time. So make sure and tune in for that one. Thank you for your iTunes and Stitcher reviews. It really helps me out. More listeners find this when you guys rate and review the podcast. So that's a great way of helping this valuable information get out there to the public. And I do believe this is valuable information. I love podcasts. It's such a great way to stay informed and stay entertained. Speaking of wonderful podcasts, Ramin Nazer has a terrific podcast of his own, Rainbow Brain Skull. With Ramin Nazer, you can hear my episode as well as uh, the many other wonderful guests that he has had on, including one of my favorite people on earth, Duncan Trussell. Make sure and check that one out. Uh, But just he's had a myriad of amazing 
guests. Uh, so make sure and check that out. Check out his artwork. If you haven't checked out Ramin Nazer's artwork, so beautiful, so simple, so thought-provoking. All at the same time. What fun stuff. Check it out. What else do I need to tell you guys? Well, just that I'm very excited about stand-up science. I can't stop talking about it. This is what it feels like to be real excited about something. You want to blab about it to everybody. I, I know there's no way you guys can be as excited for it as I am. But man, let me tell you, these shows have been terrific. Please join the mailing list, shanemoss.com to do that. And thank you for your support on patreon.com. And I've been having people coming to shows telling me that they've listened to the Everything podcast that's only available on Patreon and really like it. That's inspired me to record some more. They are emotionally challenging <laughs> to record. And so I just, I, I have a hard time mustering the energy to do it. But they are uh, cathartic for me. Maybe I'll just do some lighter ones, some fun ones sometime too. Uh, they're fun as well. I don't know. I don't know what they are. They're everything. Everything? Really? So, uh, anyway, the, the support from there goes to making this podcast possible, and I, I use that support to advertise this podcast to other people so more people can find it. And we spread the knowledge further. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.
Thank you, Editor Jimmy Martin, for making the Here We Are podcast sound terrific. And thank you to the band Rebreather for the wonderful outro music. If you want more great indie music, check out the Jimmy Fro podcast on iTunes. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.